This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Designing character build systems. Abandoned idea clearinghouse. Suspending your overeducation. And the Pascagoula UFO abduction. Slabtown Games is proud to announce the Kickstarter campaign for their new tablet-based tabletop role-playing game, Storyscape. Storyscape introduces an exciting new breed of role-playing game system, featuring an innovative system of game mechanics designed by none other than fledgling newcomer Robin D. Laws. Storyscape takes the scout workout of gaming by putting the charts, math, and number crunching under the hood, letting you spend more time gaming and less time interacting with the rules. It's designed to be universal and easy to expand, and will allow you to play in almost any genre you care to name. Starting with the fantasy build, which of course is the most in-demand build for any role-playing project, Game Masters will be able to fine-tune settings and difficulty levels, so whether you prefer heroic high fantasy or gritty dangerous noir, Storyscape can make it happen. Storyscape is chock-full of easy-to-use, lightning-fast features and tools for Game Master and players alike, from virtual miniature creation to the fog of war, to automated journals, all of it, inside your tablet. The built-in Storyscape Marketplace will give you access to the best adventure settings and campaigns created by Slabtown Games and by other users worldwide, and will also let you put your own creations up for sale. The Storyscape Kickstarter is your best chance to get your hands on exclusive content and beta access for your gaming group. Head on over to www.slabtowngames.com and check it out. The clatter of takeout containers, the popping of the pizza box, and the aroma of fine cured pepperoni tell us we have entered the gaming hut, and we've entered it while the players, or perhaps its master, is in a culinary mood. Robin, what do you offer us on the menu of the gaming hut today? Well, speaking of menus, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the menu of choices that players are offered not only to create their characters, but to continue to add things that appear on their character sheets to their characters over time. And the reason I've been thinking about this is because I've been working on the core mechanics for the Storyscape project, which, as you will uh, recall from just having heard an ad for it, is a project that is a tablet-based tabletop role-playing system. So this will be a game where you're all sitting around, you'll have the tablets in front of you, and it will do the work not only of the rule book, but of uh, the dice and the mechanics and allow us to have more complicated or involved stuff under the hood than you would want to interact with as a GM who has to remember how all the rules work and, and adjudicate them. And so the idea is to get a lot of the uh, grunt work out of the way, which allows us to do a lot cooler things and more involved things that nonetheless seem simple to you. Uh, one of the keys of how we're presenting a simple feeling experience is to make sure that the character creation is very simple. And another challenge of this is that unlike a lot of the designs that I do, which sort of carve off a very particular sort of experience, here's the game that's supposed to feel like Jack Vance, or here's the game that's all about investigations. This is about going back to sort of step 
one and designing for this particular format a set of game mechanics that is supposed to be broadly applicable to a lot of different circumstances. And so it requires uh, not a rethink necessary, but a consideration of how much do you uh, silo or uh, create sort of a, a prefix A menu that carries your character not only through its early development, but through the course of its development. Where uh, And the model for that, of course, is the D&D and all of the F20 games that surround it, where you expect, for example, that there's one player who plays the cleric, and you need a cleric in order for the game system to really work and be balanced, and it throws off the balance of the game system if the cleric doesn't show up that night or if nobody decides to play a cleric. And the upside of that is that people have very well-defined roles, and those roles are codified not only within the mechanics or the flavor on top of that, but also on a really deep level, mechanically, your character feels very different from other characters. So that's a very sort of programmed, prefix A style character development. The other side of that is one in which you do not expect to have a lot of difference between the characters, and you differentiate your characters in all sorts of other ways, uh, starting with their personalities, but that there aren't strict limits on how you're going to develop, and you are perhaps you may be starting with a template. And of course, there's a as in many design situations, there's a continuum. It's not either or, but different degrees of uh, one set of choices or the other. But and typical of that would say be uh, you know the, the most I guess uh, a la carte system is a build point system like GURPS or Champions, um, and then it's sort of in the middle. You can have kind of templated systems where you pick a stereotype or an archetype at the beginning, and you may get certain uh, deals on what your crunchy bits come with if you stick to your archetype, but you have a lot more freedom to pick the other things up along the way. So, for example, in the Esoterras, there's very little imposed on you in terms of an initial decision that you then have to stick to in terms of what your character can and can't do, uh, and that fits that genre where you have a bunch of very similar guys they are sort of all sort of military investigative specialists and what you do with the specializations you choose to select for your characters is something that you just bring out and play there's no equivalent of the somebody's got to be the cleric character so basically the question that you're wrestling with is to what extent you want strong versus weak or non-existent character classes right the notion that is class a, uh, does it provide more benefits than it subtracts when you're talking about game design and game play experience, basically? So not uh, necessarily stereotypically D&D versus RuneQuest, but that sort of direction? Right, and it's not a one is good, one is bad, but yeah. when you're starting with a project like this one that you're kind of going back to the core of, uh, or providing a core experience that can be spun off in a lot of different ways, is... How far do you go in one direction or the other? And as always, these design situations are partly a matter, or in a large degree of a matter, of addressing people's expectations. That there are emotional rewards that come with a heavily prefix-based system, 
Um, and there are play value rewards that come with that. And then, of course, on the other side of the coin, there are both emotional and play value rewards from a more distributed loosey-goosey system. An a la carte system, if you will. Yeah, an a la carte system where you're not trying to impose and maintain certain roles within the game structure throughout the course of a campaign. So have you played any of the uh, Star World games or looked at them, Apocalypse World, Dungeon World, Monster Hearts, uh, any of those sorts of games that uh, are really sort of meditations from a design perspective on character class and uh, pretty much only interact the characters with the world through various very strongly class-defined abilities? Or is that something that you are leaving to the, the kids today with their skinny jeans and their um, uh, weird emo beards? Uh, well, I know that you've played them, so so lay the lessons uh, that you've accrued uh, from them onto me. Well, I mean, I think the the interesting thing about Apocalypse World, I haven't played Dungeon World per se. I've played a couple of mods of it, and I've played uh, Monster Hearts. But when I read Apocalypse World, obviously, I mean, Vincent is one of those really good designers who you can always tell what they're designing. And that's Vincent Baker. Vincent Baker, right. Is that it began as a as a notion that you want to, uh, much like Gumshoe, you want to get, have the player doing as much of the rolling and as much of the deciding as possible to strengthen the player experience. And the way that uh, Vincent does that is you have a, a menu of actions that you can take depending on your character class. And that menu of actions is broad enough to be generally applicable to any sort of story you might be telling within the broader genre, but is also very specific to that character class so that the experience that you have within that uh, that game is very strongly class-defined. And I think that the interesting thing that it, be, it sort of began is that that uh, sort of, I think, gave the, the indie design group or story gaming design community permission to go back to the, the, the strong virtues of class-based uh, gaming, which is that you can uh, create a very focused player experience around a specific mechanical set of of possibilities, as opposed to the more GURPS or Champions or RuneQuest type experience, where it really is down to the player to sort of build their own niche and defend it against all comers. And I think that the that the possibilities that that uh, d- uh, Apocalypse World opened up are the kinds of things that, when you're looking at uh, prefix game design in the modern age, you want to look at, because those are sort of what Vincent arrowed down as sort of well, like you say, the emotional and story rewards of having uh, character classes, strong character classes, he sort of designs the system to really underline those rewards and, and play them up strongly. I mean, I, I think that the thing that we learn from Apocalypse World and its successors is that prefix design is not a, you know, throwback or retro or ancient uh, game mechanic that we've all moved past. It, it As I re- constantly say it sort of confutes any notion of a of a teleological uh you know progress in game design which is you know fairly nonsensical in any art form but is i I think provably nonsensical in terms of of uh, tabletop role-playing design right and we saw sort of the a great example of that in terms of people's expectations and attachment to the idea of a la carte play in the reaction to uh, 4E D&D, mm-hmm. where uh, people who want to play D&D felt that that was no longer as, you know, didn't have the qualities that they sought in a D&D game, right. in part because the sort of core mechanics of how each class worked 
were very similar, yeah. even though the chrome was very different. And so that even, uh, you know, uh, Rob uh, has gone on uh, with 13th Age to sort of address that. And he and Jonathan have gone back to trying to make sure that each of the different prefix A choices has its distinct feel that is not just in the way you describe things, but in the mechanical way the characters actually work. Um, from a design perspective, that is more complicated because you have to essentially design a whole bunch of sub-games that run in parallel with one another mm -hmm. and work in concert with one another. And you can uh, argue that earlier versions of D&D become problematic at different levels as, you know, baked into D&D 1 is the idea that certain classes will shine at certain points of a campaign and, and then recede into the background as other classes come out so that your fighter is very... Uh, is sort of the useful utility guy at low levels, but eventually he has to step aside for the artillery power and niche-grabbing spells of the magic user. And that is either, again, functional or dysfunctional, depending on how you look at it. If part of the fun of it is that the characters all feel very different, the fact that they ebb and flow in their power and relationship to one another is a feature, provided that you are willing to play for months and months, if not years, in order to see those come out and that everybody remains part of the group and that, you know, you don't have to, as the magic user, go and move to Wyoming just as your character is getting good. <laughs> well, anything that, uh, that uh, discourages you from moving to Wyoming and breaking up your gaming group, I think is that, that's positive design right there. So as you uh, design uh, for Storyscape and as you think about the question in large part, are you... Are you tending towards a sort of a compromise, a weak prefix or a strong or a weak a la carte system like um, Deadlands or uh, any of your other sort of archetype or template-based games? Or are you looking at going really strongly to the to the D&D &D or the RuneQuest side of, of, of the equation where uh, your character is either defined by some other choice, like in RuneQuest it's def you're defined by your cult, or is not defined at all except as the, as the character makes sort of an initial... Uh, package choice and then can build it however they want, like in Knights Black Agents where you you can, you know, say I'm starting as a wet worker who is also a bang and burner and explosives expert, but there's no mechanical difference or reward from just simply building out your character however you'd like. I wind up trying to find a sweet spot in the middle of the continuum, uh, the reason being that one of the attractions of a tablet-paced game is that it can be very simple and the idea is to be able to finally get people who are kind of interested in the concept of it but don't want to do all the homework uh, can very easily get a playable character to begin with. So that meant designing character creation so that there were always off-ramps uh, if you considered yourself uh, to be done after making one or two choices, you could then just be done and have a viable character ready to go so that if you want to uh, specify whether your character is male or female, and then specify from a choice of the four sort of key character classes. You can just go, okay, I want to be a a warrior, uh, and my guy's a, a guy. Boom, you're done in two choices, and then it assigns uh, sort of the most popular warrior build to you. And over time, the interesting thing with this is that since it will be tracking the choices people make, that if there is a 
character build that is more popular than we originally thought it would be during the early design phase, we can then make that the default choice. Right. But we also want to make sure that people who enjoy tinkering and character optimization, who want to remain on the character creation highway, then get more and more choices to make. And so they can then choose between subtypes. They can, uh, in the case of the fantasy build, which is the one that we're starting with, just because that's the one that requires you to do the most design work. And after you've done the fantasy build, the other things are just sort of a matter of mostly pairing elements away. Uh, So it's a much easier thing to um, start with the complicated one and then build the simpler horror one or the simpler futuristic one or whatever. Right. Um, But so you want those templates and cliches there for people to select. And you also want a degree of niche protection so that if I, you know, pick the backstabber character at the beginning, I always want to be the best at doing the particular backstabby things, but we also want to give people, the tinkerers, the freedom to branch out so that there isn't even a ma- like a multi-class system per se because there isn't a strong enough class structure for that. There's uh, stuff that you can build onto your characters, but it will always be a, a cheaper thing if you're buying something within your specialty than if you are... Uh, you know, mostly the backstabby guy, but you want this one blast spell, for example. Um, and so I'm trying, you know, trying to sort of hit the best of both worlds in giving people who want to adhere to a strong archetype the feeling that their niche is protected, they're the best at what they do, that the magician isn't going to come along and be better at sneaking than they are at any point. Unless he casts a silent spell, obviously. Yeah, but uh, in order to make that happen, they have to continue to invest in those things so that if you have a backstabby character, but you're the guy who's buying the extra spells and the, uh, the night vision goggles and whatever, that you are not necessarily going to feel as uh, put out as the guy who wants to play the healer character and then finds that the other character uh, is stealing their thunder. So it's trying to appeal both to people who want the freedom to tinker while creating the strong... Uh, stereotypes and simple choices of people who are more interested in playing their characters than in optimizing their characters. Now, in the specific uh, example, this this so often becomes the, what they call the cleric problem, right? Like you alluded to originally, you need a cleric to survive a dungeon, but playing the cleric is less fun than playing the, the full-on uh, fighter or the full-on magic user. And so the cleric often winds up being the character that's that, that, that's neglected at, at opening in the opening group. Now, in most uh, good functional D&D groups, you either, you know, the, the, the DM either notices that someone is playing the cleric and then makes sure that there's plenty of undead for them to turn and other things for them to do to get spotlight time, or they just start stocking a lot of healing potions in the dungeon if there's not a cleric so that the characters can can get through. Does, uh, does uh, Storyscape have basically a system by which the AI recognizes, oh, no one played the cleric, everyone gets, you know, uh, cheaper access to healing abilities, or is it a situation where some outside force has to make that correction like the DM does in a well-run uh, D&D game? Um, th- that'll certainly be something that we're tracking during playtesting, and if we find that, you know, clericless groups are getting pounded, that's simple enough to add a formula to the uh, game where for those groups, if you, you know, have not 
picked a cleric character, if that character is not on the roster, then we can decrease the price of healing potions or increase the efficacy of healing potions. And so this gives us an ability uh, more broadly to allow people to fine-tune things without having to release a completely different version of the game. And it makes it much easier to... Uh, those are going to be like an invite screen, for example. Because another question is the whole cleric issue presupposes a world of relatively easy healing where you get back up from uh, a fight in that sort of high fantasy F20 manner. But you also want to be able to uh, tick a switch where you have a grittier combat system where you're, even though it's a fantasy game, you are at risk of being uh, killed uh, on almost any fight that you enter. And so the GM will be able to, as they design their parameters for their campaign, perhaps decide that uh, healing potions are more or less plentiful in their setting as long as they're warned of what the consequences of that are. So it's something that the answer can be both, where the system can compensate for uh, player choices in order to make sure that the way the hit points work is, is playable with or without a cleric, or uh, you can decide the overall lethality factor of it. And that's something that's, again, a case of an optional rule. Optional rules are very difficult to implement in a traditional pen and paper set because uh, basically where you place the rule in the rule book determines whether it will be used or not, <laughs> in part just because it's too complicated to remember and too complicated to find things. So right. if, the, if there's a program that's doing the laborious part of that and you're just hitting a, a tick at the beginning to determine the lethality level or maybe you hate halflings. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, but that then brings up the, the question of, you know, making sure that uh, the GMs are respectful of the expectations that players are bringing to the table because maybe you really hate halflings because the, the one guy in your group always plays a halfling. <laughs> so you've got to come to some sort of accord between the two of you as to, you know, is the guy going to show up if you don't let him play a, a halfling? Maybe you, uh, maybe your hatred of, ha of halflings needs to take a backseat to the player's uh, love of halflings. But it will make the game customizable, uh, not just in this player optimization way that we're talking about, but in ways that um, we haven't been able to do in traditional rulebook-style tabletop games. Now, I, I sense that with your uh, introduction of racist halfling hatred, we are teetering on the edge of another hut, but I did want to sort of ask, I think you and I are of an era when it comes to, to gaming, that we both are sort of in the mindset of the post-RuneQuest game design space where we assume that there's going to be a broad a la carte bunch of character development and that that's sort of our comfort zone, the, the RuneQuest GURPS uh, hero system type universe. But obviously you've written a bunch of stuff for D&D &D and you've run D&D &D and you've run Pathfinder and you've uh, been part of the F20 uh, you know, second wave or resurgence or whatever. Is there some aspect as either a GM or a player that when you're playing uh, a strong prefix game, do you say, oh, that's why that works? And, and is there elements of it that you really like that, that it's a sweet hit you, you, you find dif more difficult to get in a more loosey-goosey a la carte type game environment? Um, one of the emotional payoffs of the prefix A system is that you know what you're getting next and you're looking forward to your next reward as a, a big payoff. And I think it's uh, emotionally 
different if you can get Fireball uh, than if you know Fireball is coming. Um, and there are certain sort of key things that, it, you know, it's um, exciting to get a bunch of presents under the tree. And that's what leveling up is, I think, in a strong alloc- uh, sorry, a strong prefix A system in that you have now earned a bunch of gifts that you get. It's you're basically unlocking an achievement to use a you know newer non RPG parlance. Uh, whereas being presented with choices is both rewarding but challenging because then there's the fear of making the wrong choice. And so in a uh, prefix A system, you you know you may get a couple of options, but you kind of can trust in the system to take you where you want to go so that you're signing up for a ride that has a lot of stations along the way and you are getting to experience those stations as a, a sort of flowering of your uh, character and you are uh, getting stuff rather than uh, making difficult decisions. So your notion is that a, a prefix uh, system depends strongly on it also being a level-based system, that there being a track, that there's nothing sort of in the individual moment of gaming that makes it more fun to play uh, a cleric or a, or an assassin versus just a guy with a high healing score or a high stabby-in-the-back score? Um, I think there's actually really high value in having your guy do something that is really key to the uh, function and success of the group that nobody else can do, that you're bringing something to the gaming table that uh, everybody needs you for. And that's the fun of playing the cleric, right? I, I don't, I think there are a lot of people actually who like playing clerics because they like being able to, you know, everybody owes them a solid every time they heal them up. And there's a, uh, I think maybe one of the big, you know, you might look at the classic, classic F20 classes in terms of, you know, what's the big emotional payoff that you get during a fight for the fighter. It's delivering a ton of damage for the thief. It's, you know, perfectly positioning yourself for that super, again, damaging, backstabbing attack that required a little more thinking to get there. For the cleric, it is, again, you know, healing everybody. For the magic user, it's having your big spell go off in spectacular fashion. So that each of those uh, big moments is something that you've signed up for and you want to have uh, delivered, and that a system that is uh, too uh, weak in that area just makes you feel that you are uh everybody is doing the same thing but with a little bit of a special effect that makes it feel like your thing so it's like oh i I have i'm a cleric i have an attack but my attack also heals a little bit of damage feels different Mm -hmm. than you know i did a little bit of damage to this guy but i healed my side a lot yeah i I think that that is I mean the, the the emotional payoff you get in a fight is is a big part of it certainly in in D and D and in the other F twenty games. I think that another fun thing about it is the, the that a strong class system allows. Uh, I, I think uh, not just for the player but for the GM it allows a, a a more immediately customizable game experience to happen. Like if you've got you know two clerics, you know that you can put hordes of undead in and make everything really strong. If you've got three fighters and one thief, you know that you want to have... Um, uh, you, you, challenging the, 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 the party is easier because you can do a lot more stuff with magic or with tacticals than if you've got uh, a party that's a bunch of thieves and magic users and maybe only one uh, tank paladin. I, I think that that's, that's another thing that is, is strong about uh, class-based or strong niche-based uh, systems is the sort of 
modular capacity of story design becomes stronger and more interesting for the GM than if it's just, you know, you've got your uh, six 350-point GURPS characters and they're all going through an adventure. It can be a little more of a challenge to... Then you have to target things directly. What does Stacy like? Oh, she likes ogres, so we're going to have an ogre fight. Uh, what does Rob like? Rob likes to overthink things and have long conversations, so we're going to have uh, a tiresome, boring elf who likes to talk, and everything else is going to... And you have to sort of make it more individual... Uh, and put the immediate amount of, of uh, level design or, char- or, or adventure design into that space, as opposed to starting out with sort of a strong fundamentals, a building block. What are the are the are the main obstacles that we're going to hit, and then you can add flavor at at the end. I, I think that that's a that's something that if your DM is is overworked or has a limited palette of of things to uh, to play off of for their uh, for their individual players, that that can be another good thing that. Uh, prefix uh, game design provides uh, to the experience. And some players want the character build system to allow them to announce to the GM what sort of spotlight time they want, mm-hmm. what part of the game session they want to be heavily involved in. So uh, in certain iterations of D&D, you can sort of dial back on your combat effectiveness and buy a lot of uh, skills enabling you to interact uh, with other characters or interact with the environment or, you know, the classic, you know, there's often a guy in the group who wants to be the best brewer and uh, that requires some sort of either uh, the GM then finding a way to bend the story so that brewing becomes really important or they just want to stake that out about their character and they're happy to have that on their character sheet even if it uh, never really comes up as something that enables them to overcome plot obstacles, but allows them to talk about brewing a lot, and they feel justified in doing that because it's on their sheet, right? It's the saying now is, you know, pictures or it didn't happen, and the uh, D&D or role-playing version of that is, uh, it's on my character sheet or isn't real. And so a character build is also a way of uh, deciding what part of the story that you really want to shine in, and that becomes a challenge if you are trying to make sure that the combat system is really balanced because you want to make sure that everybody in the fight is uh, equally uh, able to participate, but it's not necessarily always the case that everybody wants to dominate in that. There are some players who want to, you know, kind of put their toe in and not get killed, but that's not why they're showing up at the gaming table. They want to be a really boss at the story interaction thing. And my, uh, impulse is to make sure that everybody has uh, equal ability to affect the outcome both in combat and in more narrative modes, but that's not the expectation that everybody brings to the table. Some uh, people who really like the fights are happy to hang back during the uh, description and interaction and vice versa. I knew I could trust you to find the exit to the hut even if I pushed you back in. Um, the notion of the uh, of the skills section and its uh, role in combat versus story is probably pregnant with uh, possibility, much like uh, brewer's yeast that has been poured into the bottles, and we must now let it steep for, uh, or ferment rather, for a a week or two before we open it up again. Oh, well metaphored, well metaphored. Our next sponsor is Kotadama Heavy Industries and their game 
Ryutama, the natural fantasy RPG, translated by Matt Sanchez and Andy Kitkowski. A game that focuses on travel and exploration of a fantastic natural world instead of combat and treasure. What? That's crazy talk. Crazy talk indeed, but indeed the Game Master interacts with the world through his own character called the Ryujin, or Dragon Person. Eight different classes are available to players, from artisans and merchants to farmers and nobles. The characters are the NPCs that the heroes would encounter in a fantasy village. Simple rules for traveling make the journey between destinations fun, but perilous. It includes new rules, classes, and scenarios unique to the English translation. So now we'd like to open up not just a hut, but an entire clearinghouse, and that's the Abandoned Idea Clearinghouse. This is sort of an intersection of probably genre hut and how to write good, but I thought that uh, Ken and I would go into our commonplace books, our files where we note all sorts of ideas of uh, stories or adventures that we might want to write someday, and examine the ones that on second thought are ones that we don't want to explore, ones that instead that we will release into the world via this podcast. And uh, if you, the listener, do not feel that they have been damaged in transit, you are free even to uh, use them yourself. And I guess the overall point that we're going to be leading toward is one that was made by Mel Brooks, where if you are a writer, uh, if you are uh, someone who creates narratives, the challenge is not coming up with ideas, right? The cliche question that non-writers some often ask writers, where do you get your ideas? Um, and the question is not getting ideas, but knowing which ones are worth developing. And so I thought we would look at some of the ones that we consider not worth developing and examine why that might be. So Ken, do you have uh, an abandoned idea to uh, throw into the hopper, first of all? I have one that I I abandoned, not necessarily because I don't think it's worth developing, but because it would be very hard and take a great deal of time and probably involve a set of skills that I don't quite have that I'm maybe adjacent to. But uh, I don't know if you read uh, the comic book Planetary by um, Warren Ellis and John Cassaday, but it is a amazing tour de force uh, in which he uses comic books as the lens, a comic adventure, to examine the creation of sort of pop adventure culture starting in you know the mid-19th century and then trying to take what was strong and vital and fundamental about that genre and move it into the 21st century and have the and through the notion of superheroes who are reality archaeologists who find the weird understructure of the world that we live in um he presents a not just a continuity of these uh of these pulp archetypes or these uh, heroic adventure archetypes but also presents a little sort of slice of life moment in time adventures so there's a comic in which and the presentation is is explicitly done in a 19th century uh, looking back epistolary model, and this is where one of his uh, viewpoint characters meets Sherlock Holmes. And so the Sherlock Holmes genre and the Sherlock Holmes uh, approach are used to tell the story. Or there's one in which the entire comic book takes place at the funeral for the Vertigo Dark uh, universe of the 1980s and examines that uh, sort of cultural moment in comic book uh, storytelling uh, from... A, literally from a uh, from from the perspective of it's dead and are we glad uh, type uh, uh, a question and just looking at that at that book made me think that that there is something that you could do with that as a series of uh, role playing adventures each of which would be in a different idiom much like the each issue of planetary is colored or or um, uh, 
or, or, or framed in a different comic book idiom or a different uh, pulp adventure idiom. And so you'd start with a old school adventure where uh, your characters are in modern day uh, Germany and they hear about a, a hole that's opened up and people have gone down in and they've found artifacts from maybe Charlemagne's time or the Roman times and they're not sure. And the people who went down there the first time were all killed or they came back missing hands and eyes. And so you go down into this, uh, this, you know, basically, uh, medieval or, uh, fantasy medieval dungeon underneath Germany and you're looking for something that would evoke, uh, that, that great opening gun of, of, of original Dungeons and Dragons. And you're, you're having a adventure. So the, the setting of the adventures is all a 21st century investigative adventure campaign, but each of the adventures evokes a different era in role-playing games or a different feeling in role-playing games. And ideally you'd do it with each adventure being played out in a, in a, the rule system or as close as you could get given open uh, sourcing of, of the adventure. So the one where your doughty 21st century adventurers find, you know, a Villani spaceship you'd play out in old school traveler and the one where they meet um, uh, the cult of, Haster that's been manipulating the game, uh, manipulating the world to increase the amount of terror and, uh, and, and wonder in it, you play in, in Call of Cthulhu, and so on and so on. And I, I think a notion of a planetary style anthology of, of adventures would be terrific, but I, I'm, I'm not certain that my systems knowledge is up to writing uh, 9 or 10, I mean, there's, what, 24 chapters in planetary, so it wouldn't be that, but 9 or 10 adventures in that mode... And I'm not necessarily even sure that anyone would buy it if I did, but I think that it's the sort of thing that I would love to see someone do. Right, and that, that's a classic kind of a abandoned idea is this would be really cool if someone else did it. Mm -hmm. um, and also... Uh, well, it would be super cool if I did it, too. I just don't... I'm not sure I could do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, if, I'm, if, if we imagine, you know, a, a super can or something, uh, someone who, or, you know, an effort where you are co coordinating a whole bunch of other people to do the uh, sub work of each thing and you're overseeing how it connects and how each one works as a uh, comment on role playing genres, just the way that each installment of planetary works as a comment on pulp or comic genres. Um, and that could be. Um, exciting, but it's also would require a lot of coordination to do and a publisher willing to publish it. And uh, it requires a high level, I think, of gamer sophistication to know that that's something that they want <laughs> and also something they convince their players to actually play. I, I think sophistication is certainly what we would write on the back cover. I'm not sure that's what it would require. Obsession might be closer. <laughs> well, a, a certainly a, a high degree of specialized knowledge. Yeah to uh, be interested in that level of uh, postmodern uh, referentialism. Now, in some ways, referentialism, you know, is the coin of the realm of the contemporary geek, uh, but it's still, how do you sell this thing? Right? Exactly. How do you encapsulate that um, into a, a pitch? My first little jotlet in my uh, ideas file that I want to uh, send out into the world is also exemplary of a type and what I've written here is Celtic mercenaries fight for Egypt. <laughs> and that's all I've got. And that is the example of the uh, historical factoid that seems interesting as a historical factoid, but uh, I'm abandoning it as an idea because it isn't even an idea. It's just <laughs> a 
a, a sort of image that you could then take and, uh, you know, because it's really fascinating to think, oh, yeah, I would never think of those two cultures as existing at the same time and that there would be, uh, and it's a, sort of an exciting collision of two different cultures. But then when you start to think of uh, all of the A, research that would be involved in trying to uh, bring that to uh, life, and it would be the challenge of presenting to the reader not just one but two unfamiliar cultures, but also there's just no hook that uh, it's a cool thing that might merit, you know, linking to an article about it on uh, the web. And as uh, someone else might take that and go, oh, well, this idea really matters to me because this responds to such and such in my life, or this is a story that I can only tell by having the collision of Celtic mercenaries within Egyptian culture, but um, it ain't an idea yet. And that's how a lot of things fail to uh, leave my development window, but I nonetheless will continue to jot them down because in some cases those will flower out into something else, either something that I, an idea that is more broadly translatable that I could, for example, take and then put into a uh, a fantasy environment where there's a core emotional idea or hook that goes beyond that simple little historical fact. And, you know, something can prey on your mind for a while and grow into um, from its seed. But this is a seed that has not germinated. And therefore, I have left off my uh, uh, idea file and I'm releasing into the wilds. I guess sort of the inverse of that or the or the full verse of that is the idea that I've I've taken, I've been in love with and have run for my home group successfully, but I recognize that in terms of presenting it, I'm not sure how to how to how to write it such that anyone else could do anything with it. So my abandoned idea is an, an idea that is abandoned, uh but it it uh it's it it was a good and faithful idea to me in its time, and I'm perhaps it is a good and faithful idea to someone else. Is the game that I ran, which was uh, using Hero Quest, uh, in uh, the 18th century, as as the, uh, the the sort of the rivalry between the Drury Lane and Covent Garden theaters, and the players were all part of Drury Lane, and were discovering that uh, Shakespeare's plays open up. The in you know in he, the hero plane the god realm whatever you want to call it in Hero Quest and that that is when you put on a play in such a wise you are capable of of changing events in the real world or rewriting sort of the magic underpinnings of the universe what uh, Shakespeare uh, what Northrop Fry calls the green realm is what I called it uh, the, the 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 Shakespeare world where uh, the these plays have uh, I, literally iconic significance and. I ran it in uh, Hero Quest, and it took us a little while to sort of figure out what the rules were in the first place. So about a third of the game was was spinning our wheels and getting everyone introduced to 18th century London. And then a third of the game was everything hitting on all pins and everyone sort of having great fun and building it out. And we wound up writing uh, Love's Labors 1 sort of collaboratively together as a playgroup. And then the last third all hinged on a single die roll in which a ritual didn't just fail, but it failed nigh catastrophically. And that ritual was to rescue the soul of one of the player characters who became, as a result of that action, a Shakespearean villain. And it's like, this is the point at which Macbeth can stop stabbing people and, and make it all right. And no, he doesn't. He's a character who was the manticore heir to the throne of Britain and decided, nope, I'm going to turn Britain into the manticore kingdom, and that's my, my arc now. And so it became a PvP game for the last third 
the last act of the of the arc, and it was hugely fun and greatly rewarding to play. But it's I think it's something that would defeat my capacity to explain this is the kind of thing that has a very good chance of happening if, unlike Shakespeare, you have to let the die roll determine uh, the, the the arc of your of your tragic hero. And so I looked at it and. It was one of the best games I've ever run in my experience, but, you know, I ran it for University of Chicago students who were all hyper-literate. They were all Shakespeare fans. They Some of them have done amateur theater. It's not the kind of thing that I can imagine being able... I mean, they talk about the, the tough part of, of selling a game is putting a GM in every box. You'd have to put a GM and my player Josh and my player Zach and uh, my player Cheryl into that box to make that game work as well as it did. And Craig, of course, was the guy who who was the Manticore, who um, uh, sort of his villain turn and his ability to play PvP correctly really drove it. And I have no idea how you would do that successfully a second time, but it's such a strong concept, the notion of hero quest with uh, Shakespeare as, as, the, as the god realm, that, um, uh, that surely someone else can do something with it. It's almost as if the fabulous workings of die-rolling synchronicity that made that experience so perfect and exciting for the entire group, but which were, and part of that is the spontaneity of that is sort of blocking you from creating the broader thing that, you know, you can't possibly create in a programmed way, the spontaneity of that moment. And the idea of doing anything less than that just seems not passionately engaging to you. Right. Yeah. And, and that's another, uh, that goes to a, a couple of other questions, one specifically role-playing one, which is it is very difficult to take a great game that you ran once uh, spontaneously and then turn it into a, a gaming product for other people uh, who can then uh, recreate that experience because the a lot of the joy of that was because it's that moment of discovery where everybody knows that it wasn't meant to be this way, but the way that it has gone is more brilliant than you could have possibly imagined. Mm -hmm. And then there's just the even broader point of uh, sometimes the perfection of the idea is such that uh, once you uh, start to have to take it in another direction, you lose your love for it. You lose your passionate uh, connection to it. And once you find it's becoming sort of more of an uh, intellectual exercise in how do I construct this thing versus the original hit of creative epiphany uh, that sometimes the, the most perfect things just have to be evanescent and you have to uh, let them go in favor of the thing that you can find those discoveries in the course of making it. And so that the uh, sort of perfection of this original uh, experience at the table is uh blocking you from ever doing something that is just a reflection of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, I really felt though that I discovered a really great genre for gaming to be in. It's just that I have no idea how to present it as a genre, as opposed to a very long and perhaps tiresome war story about uh, my, my one game that I ran. And uh, I'm going to end our first installment of the abandoned idea clearing house with uh, another historical idea, but it's one that, uh, well, it's, uh, villagers undergoing forced Christianization resist the confiscation of their sacred snakes. So unlike the previous one, this is a story. This is a story idea. It has a clear conflict. Uh, it has uh, two cultures in conflict. It uh, would be very easy to then go from there to create the characters that exemplify that conflict. You can see where the through line uh, would be, and you could see 
where the point of resolution would be. It would either, you know, have to re result in the confiscation of the snakes or some sort of surprising uh, turn of events by which they are, the confiscation is undermined. Um, and the only thing that is um, missing from that then is my sense of engagement to do anything more <laughs> with it. Um, that when I look at this idea, it's like, well, I can see why I wrote it down, but I can't see why I would take that and take the time to flesh that idea out as opposed to the other 200 ideas that I have in this file. That my idea, ability to construct a story framework is in place, but the personal connection, the thing that I would want to say through that story is no longer apparent to me and perhaps at no point existed. And I think the real problem with an idea like that is that if you're at all well-read in genre fiction, there is the very great risk that you have an idea and then when you look at it a little longer, you're like, I could write this idea or I could just go and post a link to Saki's short story Shredni Vashtar on my blog and everyone who read what I did with that idea will read a better writer doing the same idea much better, and I don't have to, you know, look stupid compared to Saki. I mean, when when you told me about re resisting the confiscation of your sacred dangerous animal, that's what popped into my head. Actually, what first popped into my head was another Saki story, the story of St. Vespaluus about the sacred bears, in, and that's sort of a, a light comedy. But Shredni Vashtar is as beautiful and terrible as the sort of st the story fragment that you present, and if anyone hasn't read Shredni Vashtar, I'm not going to um, uh, uh, spoil the rest of it. But, it. but it hits all the emotional and story and even, I think, religious beats that you might want in a story like that, but was done by Saki in, you know, whatever, 1910 or something. And there's a, there's a great uh, James Thurber quote that uh, whenever I write a piece, I'm always terrified that it was done shorter, better, funnier, and uh, while drunk by Robert Benchley in 1923. And I think that a lot of times I get that same sense. I get a great idea, and it's like, I'll bet Robert E. Howard did that idea, and he, and he did it really, really well. So why am I still doing this? Right, and, and the issue there, I guess, is, is the idea more interesting than the people who are going to follow through that through line who you're going to create? But that gets us into, I think, a whole other hut that I want to uh, address soon, uh, which is that whole question of uh, what tropes are fair play to do variations on and which ones are mere reflections of things that have gone before. So uh, once again, we have uh, uh, exited our hut prematurely and uh, have ended our segment and must move on to the next one. Time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Martin Rundqvist asks Ken and Robin. Here's an elitist yet heartfelt question. I used to enjoy RPGs as a boy. Then I became a professional humanities scholar, which is the setup to a, a no doubt any number of great jokes. Anyway, um, I now find it really hard to enjoy a game where the GM and other players know less about history and anthropology than I do. Their game worlds just don't hold together for me. They look like a collection of poorly painted and slightly mismatched stage backdrops and props. My nerdy knowledge ruins my fun. 
don't you run into this all the time? I appreciate the implied compliment. Or are you always the GM? Robin, are you always the GM? Or when you play, do you uh, find yourself just wanting to fling Aristotle at people's heads? I am almost always the GM and, and I'm always very happy to get a chance to uh, play in somebody else's game. And when I do, uh, the last thing that I want to be doing is backseat uh, GMing, yeah. uh, whether that is uh, silently critiquing their sense of pacing or their mastery of the rules or the verisimilitude of their fictional worlds. And in fact, I think that this is a question that's almost ask Dr. Ken and Dr. Robin, because mm-hmm. this seems uh, like more of an emotional therapeutic puzzle, um, really than a uh, gaming issue. And it's all about the um, difficulty of detaching from a knowledge base that you've put a lot of investment in, in order to enjoy creative works. And that includes not just gameplay, but being able to enjoy historical fiction, for example, or uh, uh, fantasy or whatever, because you can, of course, detach and spend your whole time watching a, a episode of a science fiction show critiquing their science uh, just as much as you can detach from a role-playing experience and be critiquing the anthropology and uh, historical analogies of uh, players' uh, setting building. And I think the way to begin that sense of emotional detachment and recover that sense of fun that you're obviously looking for, Martin, is to remember that these stories exist not as a vehicle to convey information about anthropology or history or science, but that the they're nodding to history and anthropology and science uh, merely as things that support the telling of a story. And that re- what really matters is not the fidelity to history and knowledge that the uh, setting creator is using, but uh, just sort of look at them as, okay, this is the conceit of this is this is simplified for dramatic purposes and it is simplified in order to be accessible and the fact that it has been simplified in a way that you would not uh, permit if someone were defending their phd thesis to you is not actually a drawback it's a feature because the act of playing out a role-playing session is about uh, letting free those uh, intellectual preconceptions that get in the way of your experience in the story and focusing on the story so that look at a historical uh, parallel that seems a little shaky t- to you and and rather than saying, whoa, well, that's shaky, go, well, why has this been simplified for this dramatic purpose? And often you will find uh, why that is. Now, it may be that the person who's created that setting isn't familiar with a particular fact or doesn't have their economy of the corn god uh, absolutely correct, but they're taking a piece of it and just playing with that in a fictional context as a conceit. And the fact that it feels like uh, stage props to you, like set dressing, is not a problem. That's a good thing because that makes it accessible to everyone in the room. Yeah, I think that the, um, uh, like, like many questions for, uh, Dr. Ken or Dr. Robin, the answer is the Jack Benny answer of don't do that. Um, and how to don't do that becomes the, the difficult part. I, like Robin, I'm almost always the GM. And when I'm a player, 
I am usually playing in a world that is either so strongly genre determined, like in a, a friend's D&D fantasy world, where it literally doesn't matter whether or not the dragon kin could assemble this kind of, you know, covert um, uh, religious structure and have all these temples and do all this thing. And I'm not sitting and worrying about the demographics of his fantasy universe. What I'm worried about is whether or not my elven ranger can, um, uh, you know, save a city all by himself or has to depend on the other players to do their damn job for a change. And that's my fun in role-playing is to sort of find the place where I hook up to the setting and really strengthen that. And even if the whole setting is, is ludicrous, um, if the, the reason I'm playing with someone nine times out of 10 anyway, is that I'm their friend and I want them to have a good time. And I want a good time to be produced by our collaboration. And so my job in any collaboration is, or certainly at this point is not to go in and tell them they're doing everything wrong. It's to find the thing they're doing right and make it righter. The great, possibly uh, non-pareil in terms of actual prose style, RPG writer uh, S. John Ross is fond of saying that a nerd is, by definition, someone who lets their knowledge ruin their fun. And once you sort of realize that that is a potential danger, as you, as, as Martin has, um, I think that you sh- just being a- aware that that can happen is, uh, is, is the point at which you then say, is this experience providing enough fun that my knowledge shouldn't ruin it? Right. And there's a difference between letting your knowledge ruin your fun and recognizing that the experience is bad to begin with. So uh, letting my knowledge of the Marvel Universe or story construction ruin my experience of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I would say that that experience was pre ruined before I got to it. But <laughs> letting my knowledge of American history ruin my fun in Sleepy Hollow would, I think, be working counter to what is presented to me already because they are presenting thriller plot structure correctly. They're, they're telling televised uh, thriller horror uh, as not as well as it ever has been done, but in an, in an acceptably good way. And I think that the, maybe the diagnostic you can use is if you read something that's an acknowledged masterpiece that still plays fast and loose with stuff. If you read, say, uh, for history and anthropology, you read Conan, right? You read uh, Robert E. Howard historical and historical fantasy type fiction, like the Hyborian Age. And if you are letting your fun be ruined by the fact that Robert E. Howard was working with not just a 1930s Texan understanding of history and anthropology, but a racist 1930s Texan understanding of history and anthropology, and with a lot of other uh, sort of weird uh, uh, quirks that are Robert E. Howard's alone. If you can't read Robert E. Howard without having fun, then you're doing it wrong. Um, and I think that you can... Maybe your 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 friend's uh, campaign is not the Robert E. Howard of role playing campaigns, but you should then use that as a as a uh, as a metric by which you can say, all right, if I'm being that harsh on Robert E. Howard, I'm being way too harsh on my buddy Chet, and just because Chet doesn't understand that it's demographically impossible for the Sioux Indians to fight off white colonization, um, doesn't mean that I don't want to play in Chet's awesome game where Sioux war parties are riding uh, roughshod through Philadelphia and scalping a bunch of guys at the 1876 Centennial. I think that would be a fun game. I want to engage with Chet. I don't want to say Chet's a moron because he doesn't understand uh, North American political demography. Right. And part of the way to look at it is to is to think of the word conceit. This is just the conceit of this campaign is we know this couldn't happen, but here it did. And let's play in that playground. Um, and so if you run into a presentation of uh, history or anthropology or, or whatnot that doesn't work for you in that way, take a step back out. Well, this is just a what if. This is a simplified world designed 
to create a sandbox, usually for cool characters with superpowers of various flavors to bash each other around, um, and that this is a what-if, kooky, fictionalized version of whatever it is. And that the, uh, and I think part of this is, is, comes from a tradition that sort of overvalues the simulative part of world building, uh, and just the idea of building a realistic world as a thought experiment to which then using that as a springboard for fiction or role playing is then an afterthought. And then you have to think, what stories work in this world that I've designed that's an alternate plausible world. A lot of uh, uh, people, especially I think as uh, the way genre culture is moving, uh, see all of these uh, historical elements and uh, different genre elements as tropes to be uh, plucked from the shelf and swirled together in a postmodern mix master and then presented in a fun, crazy what if. So if you just tell yourself that this is, is meant to be fun and cr crazy and not a model that simulates uh, an alternate version of w what real-world scholarship would tell you about culture and history, I think that will serve you much better in hitting the actual objective of a role-playing session, which is, can suggest is to have fun. Yeah, the, um, uh, what they call on TV tropes, the MST3K principle, just think to yourself, it's just a show, you should really just relax. Right, and there's certain things that uh, conventions, narrative conventions, that you use because they work. That's why they're conventions, mm -hmm. and uh, it's maybe uh, a matter of taking your analytical mind and pointing it at the story structure and the need for these conventions, uh, and pointing it away from your knowledge of other specialized areas. Uh, anything else you want to add before we move on to our final segment? I mean, I, like everything, obviously, you can go too far. And if Chet is really intending his game to be a serious examination of uh, North American political demography, this may be uh, not the game for you, or you may want to get Chet out of the out of the gaming environment and, you know, over a pizza, say, Chet, where are you going with this? Um, you know, I'm I'm not exactly sure that I'm going to be able to play the character who is... Uh, doing an anthropological investigation of of the Sioux territories, unless there's going to be more behind that backdrop that than you're showing me already, and maybe that's the way you you rescue it is is out of game. Talk to Chet and see what Chet is doing, and if Chet is just dude, Sioux are awesome, then you know that that is the the way you're going to be playing, and not uh, and to either and to, and to ask the question at what point am I going to be able to suspend my my disbelief? Because you know someone who's a a professional uh, astrophysicist is going to have a harder time, I think, watching science fiction that purports to be hard SF than someone like myself who has a, a sort of journeyman's knowledge of astrophysics, so I know enough to know more than virtually any Hollywood writer about it, but I'm not in a situation where I'm going, oh my god, they, they, there's no way that could work, they're all dead of, of, uh, of gamma radiation or something, the, the way that a real astro astrophysicist might, might, might respond. So everyone's got their own... Uh, trigger point, I guess. Right, and there's a way to have that pizza conversation with chat that's collaborative rather than assaultive, which right, is yeah. I noticed that the matriarchy worked uh, this way, but here's this really cool thing about how the matriarchy actually worked. How can we work that in? Mm -hmm. So it's rather than you suck as a depictor of matriarchies, um, it's uh, hey, here's this other cool idea. Maybe we could uh, add that to the mix. And so it's not about you confronting them with your suspension of disbelief problems so much as uh, giving them more material to work with in a way that would take 
the game in a direction that you would then find easier to mesh with. Right. Yeah. And 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 like like every collaborative endeavor, really, a lot of it comes down to you know being generous and uh, and uh, thinking about the project as opposed to your own particular issues in the project. And we are so generous that our podcasts have four segments. So let's move on to our fourth segment. The glowing eyes of the alien big cat staring through the window at us and the portrait of Charles Fort hanging over our heads indicates that we have once more stumbled into the eerie yet ill-defined borders of the Elliptony Hut. And this week, Ken, I thought that we uh, would enter an area that we haven't talked too much about on the show, but which is a, a rich mother load of Elliptonic or Fortian information, and that is uh, the whole history of UFO encounters and uh, belief in UFOs. And so I thought that we would kick things off by looking at the uh, Pascagoula UFO abduction, which is a little bit in the news because uh, one of the people who was uh, the two people who were allegedly abducted by aliens in this incident uh, actually started uh, speaking to the press, which heretofore he has not done. Uh, his name is Calvin Parker Jr. His uh, co-supposed uh, abductee was named Charles Hickson, and this occurred during a big year for UFOs, which is 1973. Ken, can you tell the story for us? Okay, the story is pretty basic. Um, Hickson was, at the time of the uh, encounter, he's 42 years old. Uh, Calvin Parker is his co-worker, who's 19. Uh, they work at a shipyard in Pasigula. They're off fishing. And they hear a sound, they see uh, flashing lights, and an oval UFO craft uh, appears to them. Uh, it's hovering, and three creatures come out and grab them, either grab them physically or grab them, you know, magically, scientifically. It's not super Tractor clear. beamly. Tractor beamly. And uh, float them into the craft where they engage in weird activity and then uh, let them go. And the, the great thing about the beings is that because it's a 1973 incident, it's before... The, the, uh, Steven Spielberg makes everyone see greys. And the, the beings in Pasigula were, uh, humanoids and, uh, wrinkly as opposed to smooth. Uh, and they had no eyes. They, um, had no necks. And they, depending on which time you ask them, they either had slits for mouths or just holes for mouths. But they had carrot-like growths coming off their faces, and they had lobster claws and only one leg, which is great, right? Because then we're now talking about, once you hear lobster claws and glowing UFOs, you're talking about the Mego. And so I, I, I love the, the lobster claws, and I love the, the, the sort of mermaid uh, uh, monopod or tail uh, feature of these guys. And so they, um, uh, they uh, took them into the, into, the, uh, into the craft, and they uh, investigated them, and, um, uh, or, you know, did the, 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 the crazy stuff that, that you do. And then they dumped them back in the, um, uh, in, in Pasigula and sit in their car, um, where, uh, Hickson apparently at that point enjoys a restorative jolt of whiskey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as, as one does after good program. As you do. And, uh, then he goes to Kessler Air Force Base to report his UFO encounter, or they go to Kessler Air Force Base and the UFO, and the Air Force says, we don't care, go away. And so they went to the sheriff's office and the sheriff, um, thinking to catch them in a lie, 
puts them in a secretly taped room where they will talk amongst themselves about how hilarious it is they're telling awesome UFO stories to the sheriff, and uh, instead, all they're doing is saying, man, that was freaky, that was weird, um, uh, uh, and Hickson apparently tries to talk Parker into having more whiskey to, um, uh, to uh, deal with the trauma, and Parker's like, I don't drink, man, uh, cut it out, stop messing with me. But they, they strike the sheriff as being genuinely terrified by their experience. Exactly. And they are, um, <laughs> I guess, cursorily polygraphed, um, uh, to see what their story, uh, sh- uh, shapes up like. And then Hickson begins to go on a giant publicity tour. He gets in touch with an, a literary agent who thinks his story is worth a million dollars. And he starts, um, uh, he goes on Dick Cavett and he becomes sort of a, a cause celeb in the, uh, burgeoning, uh, UFO contactee abductee, uh, movement that is, uh, created by these sort of early 1970s cases. So how does this fit into the uh, history of abductions? I think that this one appeals to me precisely because the aliens are so vividly off model mm-hmm. uh, that they seem like uh, descriptions of claymation creatures and they are sort of one-offs in that this did not inspire other people to report being probed by uh, lobster clawed monopods uh, as opposed to sort of the uh, blonde uh, super Aryan space elf uh, that was sort of a model in the what the 40s and 50s, or the uh, the greys that soon after, uh, when Close Encounters comes out, uh, supplant them. So, uh, how does this? Uh, is this a, a very atypical, other than the description of the aliens, or does this fit the typical aleptonic pattern of the alien abduction myth? I mean, the the thing about the alien abduction myth is that the fundamental pattern, which is neurological, is you have some sort of sensory experience that you can't wrap your head around, often tied in with being either in an altered state or a hypnagogic state. Like uh, the classic example is what they call uh, night hag syndrome, when you awaken but you feel like you can't move, called awareness during sleep paralysis, ASDP, which is like 25% of Americans uh, potentially have it. And so that's the sensation that you wake up, you're, you're actually still asleep, but your sensorium isn't asleep, and it's seeing things, but because your brain is still asleep, it confabulates what you see. Often you see figures in the room with you messing with you. And that's just an absolutely standard neurological thing that happens a lot. And if you take away the exciting details about uh, lobster-clawed aliens, this is kind of what you've got, is you've got a guy who's been drinking and another guy who's 19, basically right as the draft has ended for Vietnam. So he's at a point in his life where he's already you know, kind of on edge. He's with his boss at the shipyard, who, it turns out, had been engaging in predatory actions towards his uh, employees at the shipyard. He'd basically been borrowing money from them without ever intending to pay it back. So the guy, so Parker may or may not have been in an emotionally uh, confused state, regardless of whether or not Hickson intended to, uh, uh, you know, mulch uh, money off of him. And so you're, you've got a, an ideal situation for a standard eleptonic encounter a UFO encounter, a abduction encounter, which goes back to, you know, visitations from elves or demons or any other kind of thing. The fundamental of the story is is that is that same framework that lets us slot it into that, that abduction narrative. And the reason that we are fairly sure that there was no actual UFO is because their car was sitting in full view of two traffic cameras, which record nothing. So if they have an encounter with aliens, it is within the uh, ultra-terrestrial dimension of mind space, not in the ordinary world of traffic cameras. Right, because the 
sort of really fascinating thing about this, and I think there's only a, another couple of stories that go with it, is it's not a single person entering a hypnagogic state or a nighthag state and then describing that and perhaps having the memories cemented and altered by uh, attempts at hypnotic retrieval that actually, you know, create memories. Mm -hmm. But it's two people having this happen at once. And that seems weird, even if we have the footage of them sitting together in their truck. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do we then uh, take this idea of the contagious hypnagogic state and turn it into something for our fiction and gaming? Well, I mean, first of all, um, one of the great things, and I mentioned the Migo not just because of the lobster claws, but because there is that same approach. And Lovecraft, when you read Lovecraft, um, it's amazing to me that he's writing these things in 1931 because they seem so contemporary. The Whisper in the Darkness has a lot of the aspects of UFO abduction and UFO encounter stories. And he's writing this at a time before any of them had really been reported uh, to, to a great degree. And the Migo can create this sort of hypnagogic state. They can cause people to have missing time in their minds. They have that same a affect of uh, per paralysis and terror and moving you into a, a, a place to do the weird experiments. And what I like about UFO encounters as a myth, as opposed to as a neurological phenomenon, because again, you know, that's once you, once you know this, the secret, it kind of spoils the fun on that level. But what I like about it as a myth is precisely the, the individual variation, the, the way that you can have something happen, but that the individual ultra terrestrial encounter is always, uh, exciting and individual. And it's, it's great. It's just in the same way that every love story is basically the same sort of story, but every one's love story is unique and special and magical and different. The same thing is, I think, true with UFO abductions. And when I look at uh, something like this story, um, my instinct is not just to look at the Pascula abduction in all of its wrinkly, uh, carrot-headed glory. And I point out that Parker has uh, later, and I think this is what you allude to, uh, changed back to, ironically, the sort of Nordic alien with a message from God that was standard in the 1950s that he, he saw a petite woman who um, <laughs> experimented on his penis in uh, in ways that one can imagine, I'm sure, and then told him about uh, the Bible, which is uh, indicative of Pasigula, if nothing else. But my instinct is to go back to Pasigula and say, all right, now that you've got one eruption there, what else have you got? And of course, Pasigula also has a great mermaid story, which ties into the, um, uh, the, the sort of mermaid tale of the aliens that, um, uh, the mermaids had, uh, sort of shown up in Singing River and abducted a whole tribe of Indians to save them, uh, speaking of our previous segment, to save them from forced Christianity. And the notion that this story comes up in 1885 as opposed to closer to when they would have been missionarized is an interesting historical note, but it also says that we've got a mermaid tradition in Pasigula, and now we've got mermaids and mermaid-tailed aliens, and now we can start drawing those connections. And I think that the individual story is not necessarily the thing that I find interesting leptonically. It's the connections that you can draw to something else that happens in, in the area, or to something else, like I drew it to Lovecraft, and I can say what other parallels exist between the Migo and the Pasigula aliens. And the more of those you find, I think the richer and more interesting it becomes as a thing to do other things with. And the more you see hooks you can use to tie it into your story or your game. 
Um, now, you mentioned the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, and I thought maybe I'd get you to unpack that a little. I think that comes from John Keel, doesn't it? It does. It comes from... And if there's one ufologist that you should read as literature as opposed to as narration of delusion, uh, John Keel is your guy. He has the basic belief that UFOs do not come from outer space. They come from another dimension or another state of being, depending on how you want to parse it. And he calls them, rather than extraterrestrials, he calls them ultra-terrestrials. That they erupt into our perceived reality, just like demons and fairies and angels and other beings that are not from outer space, but are from another world, the green realm, whatever you want to call it. And um, that these beings, by and large, are malevolent and are messing with us, which is the great thing that I, th I think about Kiel. Again, I'm a horror fan, and he recasts ufology as horror um, in his in his various writings. The, the great ultra-terrestrial book, I think, is um, Operation Trojan Horse, but uh, The Mothman Prophecies is, of course, his classic, which sort of deals with this. And so the notion that once you have gotten away from the notion that these have to be flying saucers from Zeta Reticuli, you are free then to embrace the awesome details of a wrinkly lobster-clawed mermaid as opposed to saying, oh, they, they were pale-colored and wrinkly, just like greys are. They were abducted by greys because we know that there are grey aliens from Zeta Reticuli. And so you are allowed to enjoy the richness of, of the experience without trying to, um, ironically, uh, debunk it in the, in the name of your own rational explanation. And once you ab abandon the notion that there is a rational explanation, or you say the rational explanation is that the irrational exists and is messing with you, um, I, I think it, it, it makes it, I mean, first of all, it, it, it solves all of the problems with it actually not happening. And then um, uh, it, it opens it up to way better stories, in my opinion. And Keel is really great on the men in black, the oh, encounters so with the uh, mysterious investigators who themselves turn up and turn out to be weirdly non-human, which in a way is even uh, stranger and more eerie and more unnerving than the idea of, you know, guys in a craft coming along to pick you up, but that there are, you know, inhuman uh, creatures on this earth who know enough to almost successfully pose as FBI agents, uh, even though they don't really have ears if you look at them, um, is, uh, I think, extremely uh, effective and, uh, in a way, is even more of a horror image than the uh, lobster-clawed monopods. Yeah, we, sh we should probably do a whole hut on John Keel because he is so interesting and because his hypothesis is so great and so powerful. Um, I mean, he's... I, I would say that he is probably the, the greatest horror writer who is unacknowledged as a horror writer of the century. Uh, and his uh, and his ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, which is something that uh, the other, sort of one of the other deans of ufology, Jacques Vallée, sort of talked himself around to. But by the time he was writing Passport to Magonia, he recognized that uh, UFO stories and fairy stories are basically the same kind of stories. And so uh, for the sort of uh, very straightforward, methodical Jacques Vallée and the uh, excitable and awesome John Keel to come together on the same hypothesis, I think, uh, also strengthens that ultra-terrestrial knowledge. Um, I should mention that Pasigula also is the home of the Phantom Barber, who would sneak into people's houses in 1944 and cut their hair against their will. Undoubtedly harvesting it for the use of men in black. Uh, for, I would say as, obviously, genetic material from which to grow men in black, or possibly just to make the men in black um, uh, 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 convincing-looking wigs so that they're freaky uh, alien baldness did not terrify. But, uh, yeah, the, the, you, when you have a phantom barber and a mermaid and Mygo abducting people with or without whiskey, 
I think you've, you've really got something going on. And obviously, uh, once you start looking in any, really in anywhere, you, you keep seeing patterns. That's one of the beautiful, brilliant things about being a hominid. And so, um, you, you, you get, you know, there, there's no bottom to that well. You could probably drill down. I don't have it, uh, open here in front of me. But if I, if I went back and got, uh, my copy of, uh, George Eberhardt's, um, uh, index of, uh, of anomalies by geography, uh, there, there's probably like you know seven or eight similarly awesome incidents in Pasigula that you could uncover. Um, well, uh, I think that uh, we've uh, well covered this little bit of elliptony then, and I think it's uh, I don't know. I'm getting uh, hungry. I feel like a like a nice crab salad. Mm, and maybe and maybe to wash it down with some whiskey. <laughs> Indeed, yes, especially if the uh, crab salad probes me. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, probe it before it probes you. That's that's the elliptonist's credo. Uh, indeed, yes, and uh, and words to live by, uh, podcast listeners. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Slabtown Games. Kotadama Heavy Industries. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem offer going by clicking the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>